Welcome to If You Build It. This is your home for positive practices in youth sports. My name is Gary Dorkwitz. I've been uh, involved in coaching for the past 30 plus years. My mission really is to promote and cultivate best practices for positive and healthy experiences for young athletes. And today I actually have the perfect guest, uh, Mr. Rick Wolf. Uh, tremendous resume. Uh, has his show on WFAN weekly on Sundays. And um, besides that, an author, uh, a, you know, a former baseball coach, and uh, he also has experience as a, as a sports dad um, and is a resident and, and renowned expert on sports parenting. So uh, welcome to the show and also welcome to our returning uh, listeners and, and future listeners here. Gary, it's uh, just a real real joy and a privilege to join you for this conversation. As you know, I've been admiring, I've been an admirer of your coaching skills for years over at North Rockland with their excellent hockey program. So this is, this is a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I appreciate it. And um, so this uh, podcast, as I was telling you, is really born out of the pandemic and, um, you know, a lot of time around the house and just, it was become very therapeutic to do these things. What, uh, what did you do uh, during pandemic? What kept you busy? <laughs> well, uh, my radio show, among other things, um, I funny, uh, the, the, the two takeaways I recall, first of all, obviously, when everything shut down, uh, including uh, the, the local gym where I worked out, uh, when that shut down, this is probably, you know, March, uh, I said, okay, well, I, I got to stay somehow physically fit. Otherwise, I'll sit around and just eat all day. So I did something very obvious. I started to walk and I started to walk around my neighborhood. I live uh, in Westchester County, uh, and it's fairly where I live. It's fairly uh, a bit remote, um, a lot of woods and pathways. So I just started to walk every day, and it was fine because it started in, in late March, and of course the weather got better and better. But <laughs> got a little chillier come the winter time, and I was I was very pleased that I was able to continue my walks every day. I was doing maybe three, maybe four miles a day, um, even in the cold and the snow and the ice. Meanwhile, I was obviously doing my, my radio show uh, on every Sunday, but you know I'm on the air for an hour, but the prep work area is several hours. It is a, it is a labor of love, but during the pandemic, everybody was looking for answers involving high school sports. What about uh, travel and club teams? You know, are kids allowed to do this? Or, you know, there was just unfortunately, uh, just really just pandemonium, chaos, Nobody had the answers, and uh, the show became sort of a focal point for a lot of parents, their athletes, coaches, athletic directors. What's the latest? What can we do? Should we start? Should we postpone the seasons, and so on and so forth? So that's that's how I pretty much spend the, the last year or so. Yeah, and it's um, it was fascinating in terms of different solutions people were coming up with, and. Uh, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I felt like the last year, somewhere along the line, like as a culture, we lost the healthy respect for the different viewpoints that people had. It was either like, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. There was no like, hey, I respect what you're saying, but I have a different viewpoint. And I did see that kind of creep into sports. Did you notice that or what was your take? Yeah, I, I am very much aware of what you're talking about. And I must confess that I tried to tiptoe around those polarizing issues, because there was a sense from a number of sports parents that, you know what, uh, my kid is not carrying the virus 
and uh, you know he's or she is healthy. You're taking away their best years in high school sports. And Gary, you, you know what I'm talking about. This is what parents were saying. But then the other side, you had a lot of the administrators and the, the, the people like Dr. Fauci and all the other experts saying, no, 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 you understand. The kids may not get sick, but they are the ones who do carry the, the disease mm -hmm. and they might bring it home to you, their parents or grandparents, whatever. So there's no rush on this. Yeah, but you know, you're, you're, my kid is suffering uh, from depression because they can't play sports. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. I mean, you know, so it was a very, very delicate issue to walk around. But to me, at the end of the at the end of all this, to me was well, you know. So I'm sorry that there's a pandemic. No, it's nobody's fault. But the fact is, you know, your kid will get through this somehow. But you don't want to take the chance that somebody in their family uh, falls ill and dies. I mean, as you know, at one point the, there were thousands of thousands of Americans dying every day. So to me, the only rough comparison would be well, if your kid had broken their leg playing sports. Then they would sit out for five, six months anyhow. So you know that's what it's sort of like. But again, it was very, very delicate because parents, a lot of parents felt they it was their right to demand the kids play, and some other ones, other on the other side, the coaches, administrators, no, we're not going to do this. Or you couldn't get officials, whatever. I mean, it was it was quite quite an issue. So I mean, I I uh, I do listen to your show every Sunday. I love it. Um... I'm usually driving to some you you know youth game or whatever, but I you know I make I make my son listen too. Um, so I guess one of the things that there was one week I was really like, uh, you know, I, I wanted to call in, uh, and it was really about like the idea with the youth sports and and pandemic. So and you coached in college, right? So I'm looking at there was a lot of. Uh, guidelines where you know high school coaches couldn't really coach the college coaches couldn't coach and at the time the professional level guys really were very limited in what they could do with interactions too but yeah. the first the first uh foray into opening up sports really happened on the youth level and at the time with the weather um you know you were talking about spring late spring and summer sports and as excited as i was to see kids out on the field I couldn't help but say, listen, if 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 a guy had coached in college for 12 years, 14 years, whatever it was, and that guy cannot coach, you might have very well the nicest gentleman that you could find coaching a little league team, but had no prior experience coaching, or in this case, how to separate children, put them into groups and things like that. Did you have any thoughts on that or did anything like that come up and kind of strike you? Because that was like one of my first things I was like, wild me the, the thing that uh, uh, really sort of drove me batty was the fact that you got reports differing reports from all over the country regarding youth sports i, rem I can recall very vividly uh, somebody emailing me or or sending an article to me that in in the depths of the pandemic in florida kids were still playing uh, little league baseball and you say how in the world can they do that when, when there are people up here are, are dying of the disease? And it's just that every state, every governor, basically, because they had there were no real hard and fast rules from the federal government, everybody was sort of doing what they wanted to do. Um, and, and I know a lot of people got very angry. They'd say, well, I went to watch a, a, a girl's softball game in uh, South Carolina and nobody's wearing a mask. It was like bizarre. Uh, it was it was hard to get a, a real sense of this. That's why 
I really felt very strongly for a long time that uh, particularly at the at the travel and club level in all sports, you know, you're really at the mercy as a sports parent of whatever the, the, the people who run that team or organization are all about. They can charge whatever they want. They can run any kind of uh, practices they want. They can pretty much have a have a free free reign on all this. So I've been campaigning, you know, for a long time, there should be some sort of federal commissioner that oversees mm. all this travel and youth sports. But I then extended that and said, you know, if we had a, a commissioner of youth sports and travel sports, they'd be able to, to put some mandates out about what we can and can't do around the country during the pandemic. Uh, it was it was just very, very odd, very strange. Um, and, and it was very frustrating. Quite frankly, I think it was also dangerous. And people kept saying, well, kids don't die from this disease. Well, yeah, there were reports of, of, of college athletes dying from COVID or COVID complications. And there were reports of, of kids having long-term you know, uh, medical concerns, the so-called long haulers, all related to COVID. But you know, for whatever reason, the parents sort of felt, well, my kid won't be that kid. So it was very hard. Yeah. And I, and I believe this is a, a totally uh, as far as I could be from uh, a political point of view. But the, the fact was, like, it, where we live, the governors in the neighboring states had gotten together about transportation, said, hey, well, Rick, if you live, you know, in New York, but you work in Connecticut, you know, we're going to work together for people, you know, crossing borders. And we're going to try to do that um, as kind as kind of a, a, a small group here, which, I, you know, to me, it made sense, but they didn't do that with sports. Um, they, they had these separate things. So it's like, you know, if a child lived in one state and they weren't able to play that sport in that state, now they're traveling to another state to do that. And it just didn't make any sense to me. Like, what was your take on that? Well, early on, I had on a uh, Steve Callis, who's a good friend and, and a very, very, brilliant uh, attorney who loves sports and is well-versed in, in sports and the legal world. And uh, I remember asking Steve, is is that the reason why we're not seeing more, more kids and more schools coming forth? And he said, yeah, there's no question. There is a legal component to this. This is uncharted territory. But if, if, uh, if, a, if a high school or a club team allowed, you know, a kid to play sports and that kid got sick, or, tr or basically transmitted the disease to their parents, you're looking at some major, major lawsuits. And uh, I remember asking him, well, well, will schools make kids sign waivers to play their sports? And he said, yeah, they probably will because they don't want to be involved or in involved in a potential litigation. So I, I think I think underlying all the stuff you just talked about with transportation, there was a concern that somebody might get sick and it might be a situation with, with a lawsuit. So it didn't make much, nobody talked about it much, but I do think that was a major concern. Yeah, and it was, like if you're, if you're John were back in high school, you know, there's, there's uh, hockey rinks where you would have been able to enter uh, had it been a youth event, but then on the high school side, because of the rules in the section that the school resides in, you wouldn't have been able to enter, you know? And that's another thing. It was so, every sport was different. You mentioned ice hockey. Um, you know, I'm sure you, you saw reports from USA Hockey, which is a great organization, saying that they had research that uh, the virus basically does not evaporate 
in a, in a closed environment, like a hockey rink. It actually stays close to the ice. So they were saying, not only early on, but throughout the winter saying, we don't advise anybody go and play hockey in an indoor rink because there's a real concern. Even if the kids are, are wearing face masks or wearing masks or, you know, cloth masks, there's a problem that, that, that is, that's the way those rinks are set up in terms of the circulation and HVAC system, they're not, the, the air is not going to circulate as opposed to playing on an outside outdoors rink where mm -hmm. obviously you have fresh air. Tell you, man, it was so complicated, so difficult to give real advice. And, and, um, yeah, it was hard. So I, I don't, I mean, I just sort of said, you know, most parents would ask me, I'd say, I think you better be on the safe side. Wait till you get the all, all clear and come back and play. You might just play a handful of games as is what happened. Uh, but the fact is this, you can play in a sense of your kid can have a chance to at least get a taste of playing high school sports. Yeah. You know, it's difficult. I also thought when, um, when I had the idea to start this podcast, one of the segments I wanted to come up with was it's all about the kids because I don't think anybody's heard that term more than you have, right? It's all about the kids. And <laughs> yet you see the behavior isn't always all about the kids. And I thought that the last year was very revealing in, in, in a lot of that stuff, but um, that that's certainly a long conversation, but I, I want to uh, switch the, uh, the tone here a little bit. So a couple interesting things I found out I was trying to do my homework on you. Um, some things I knew, some things I did not know. One, I did not know that you went to Edgemont. That is uh, where my wife works and has worked for the past 20 some odd years as an elementary school teacher. Oh, no kidding. So, um, okay. so that was cool. Um, I knew that you're in the book business and um, I know you've had a couple successful books and that was pretty exciting. I knew that you were a baseball player. I didn't know that you were drafted by the Tigers. But one thing I have to ask you about, I don't know it has anything to do with what we're talking about today. I'm just curious. Uh, it said that at age of 38, you went back to the South Bend White Sox to play a couple <laughs> of games and you went four for seven. What was that all about? Oh, that's one of my all-time favorite stories. Um, and yes, all the things you just listed are true. Uh, I did go to Edgemont High School. I grew up in Edgemont. Uh, and um, the best way to describe those years in the uh, the 60s um, was like Camelot. Uh, Edgemont was, uh, and I guess still is, uh, noted for its academics and uh, it had has great sports as well. But I was very, very fortunate to have gone to Edgemont and have played uh, football and uh, baseball and basketball. Um, but fast forwarding to <laughs> my experiences, yes, I was drafted after uh, my junior year in college by the Tigers as a second baseman and uh, uh, played a few years in the minors before, before I realized that, um, that, yes, I was a very good baseball player. I was the, your typical uh, good glove, limited hitting kind of ball player. And there was a guy named Lou Whitaker who was behind me in the system who basically sort of leapfrogged over me. And I remember having a conversation, a candid conversation with the farm director saying, look, you know, why, why do you think, where do you think I'm going to be in terms of long range prospects? And he said to me, Rick, we think you may, may have a shot to be perhaps a utility infielder at some point. And I said, why not just be, why, why can't I just be a starting second baseman in, in the Detroit Tigers? He said, well, to be very honest with you, we have this kid named Lou Whitaker who is four years younger than you are. 
And um, we like him an awful lot. We think he's going to be the second baseman for the future. And I looked at the man, this is again back in the mid 70s. <laughs> and I said, with all due respect, uh, you know, the kid's a decent ball player, but he really can't carry my jock. <laughs> well, th thank you for your astute analysis, but um, that's that's where we think it's going to be. And of course, Lou Whitaker went on to play 20 years in, uh, in the Tiger organization as their star second baseman. So I went on to, to go into book publishing. But to get back to your story, so I played the minors. I was a good ball player. Um, and then about, I guess it was during the late 80s when the movie Field of Dreams came out. Everybody was crazy about, oh my gosh, you will build it. If you build it, they will come, that kind of stuff, yeah. like your podcast. So yeah. um, I, I was having a conversation one day with an editor from Sports Illustrated, and she said to me, I say to her, so, you know, that whole thing about uh, the Field of Dreams motif, I got to tell you, when I played the minors, it was brutal. I mean, you would, you, you would get on a bus and travel all night, 10, 12 hours to your next, uh, you know, minor league game. If you took an 0 for 4 the night before, you were miserable. It was hard. Uh, it was just, it, it was, it was really, you had to really pay, you had to really love it if you want to kick, stick it out. So she said to me, well, Rick, why don't you go back uh, and write about that and how, what the reality is of playing class A ball? So I said, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll go back and, uh, you know, maybe I'll go back to the Midwest League, which was one of the leagues I played in out in, out in Iowa. And uh, she said, no, you don't understand. I want you to go back and actually play. <laughs> I, said, I said, wait a minute, I'm 38 years old. I haven't played professional baseball in you know, 15, 20 years. Um, it was really hard then. It's not going to get any easier now. And it was hard getting signed then. Now you want to, he said, look, that's the deal. If you want to write about, about minor league baseball and the reality, you've got to go back and get a contract. Long story short, uh, I had a very good friend who was a scout for the White Sox, told him the whole deal. He said, Rick, I'll get you a contract for three days with South Bend White Sox in the Midwest League. And you can, um, if you sign a waiver that you won't sue us if you get killed, that's fine. So I, fine. So I did that. And I went out to South Bend in the middle of June. And yes, I can't explain this. I cannot explain this, Gary, but they were playing the... Uh, uh, the Burlington Braves from Burlington, Iowa, which was a, a Atlanta Braves farm team. And they had kids mostly in their late teens, early 20s, all guys throwing 90 plus. And yes, I, uh, I went four for seven at 571. My last at bat, I doubled off the center field wall, had a few RBIs, played second base. It was, it was like I had sold my soul to the devil. And um, I, it, was, it was great that the South Bend White Sox had a fine team. Um, they went on to win the championship that year. Uh, I was their quote unquote, uh, uh, you know, leading hitter. Uh, they voted me a, a, a championship ring, which I still cherish. <laughs> and, um, but it was extraordinary. And what, uh, it was just so bizarre that, um, that it happened the way it did. And, and um, I, I can't, I still can't explain it, but it was fun. It was great. It was amazing. So I can only imagine what the uh, response was from these young guys on the team saying, "Look at this guy's coming in there." And then it's but that's it. That's a you know that's a bat that's a bat flip in today's world. It's all right, boys. That's how it's done. And and out you go. <laughs> Did any of the guys on that team uh, progress to the major leagues? Yeah, a few guys did. In fact, it was one guy. 
Jeez, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, left-handed pitcher, maybe Kalinsky, something like that. But uh, fast forward a year later, or two years later, and uh, I'm now working for the Cleveland Indians as their roving sports uh, psychology coach. And um, one day I'm in Cleveland, and as part of my my routine to build rapport and a sense of trust with the the Indians at the big league level, I was always in uniform. So during batting practice one day, we're going through stretching exercises, and I'm chatting with a couple of guys on on the Indians ball club, and they're playing. We're playing the White Sox, and sure enough, a, a kid from the White Sox looks familiar, and he comes over to me, and he says to me, "Rick," I said, "Yes." Yeah. Oh yeah, I know you're 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 Kalinsky from uh from uh South Bend. He says, Yeah. I, and he looked at me because he remembered how I hit it. He said, Are you playing for Cleveland now? <laughs> it was perhaps the greatest compliment I've ever received. Uh but it's all true. And and uh, yeah, a couple of kids got some a uh, cup of coffee from that ball club. But yeah, it's it was unbelievable because I was I was five years older than the the manager for the South Bend White Sox. And um, I'll never forget the shortstop uh, who was like 20 or 21. After the third game, he came up to me and said, said Rick, how the hell are you doing this? <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was dream come true. So Yeah, I had to ask about that. Um, so I'm going to just uh, – I want to ask about this because I uh, I grew up as a kid. I think I was telling you I'm, I was a radio under my pillow guy. Yeah, um, me too. I'm still I'm still that guy, uh, as much as my wife uh, doesn't like it. But I'm still I'm still that guy. But yep. you know I, I grew up listening to your dad, and I, um, you know, it was a uh, part of the fabric of of growing up where it was you know Bob Wolf and Cal Ramsey on Nick games, and your dad just had this presence about him, um, and. I don't know. He's very welcoming and just seemed like such a great hearted guy. I guess where I'm going is where did you get your passion for sports and where did all that come from? Well, certainly it came from my mom and dad. Uh, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> the old saying is you, you, you have to pick your parents carefully. Um, and, and I, you know, I think I did, <laughs> but I was truly, truly blessed to have uh, not only my father, who obviously uh, grew up himself uh, a big sports fan and a big athlete himself. He grew up on Long Island and loved baseball uh, and, and loved basketball, uh, played some soccer, football, ice hockey. He loved all sports, tennis too. My mom was just an absolute uh, godsend in terms of supporting not only me, but my older brother, who was a terrific athlete and was a great pitcher at Princeton, and my younger sister, who unfortunately was – was into high school before Title IX came around, but she would have been a dominant athlete uh, if Title IX existed back in those days. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up um, in, in sports arenas. I mean, I grew up, um, I mean, I was originally born in Washington, D.C., and my dad was doing the old, old Washington Senators games uh, before the, that franchise moved to Minnesota, became the Twins. But I spent a lot of time in the old Griffith Stadium, which is long gone, spent a lot of time at the Garden, the city. Uh, you know, Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium, all those places. But sports were was what we lived and breathed in my home, and that's what it was all about. Um, and a lot of the a lot of the lessons I, or the insights or, or topics I talk about on the show 
all stem from things that I encountered as a kid growing up uh, with my mom and dad. I mean, it was, it's as simple as that. Whether it was, you know, how to deal with adversity, how to deal with setbacks, how to deal with injuries, uh, how to work, uh, you know, with, with with coaches who maybe not, didn't think you had as much talent as you thought you had. All these things, all the things I talk about in the show invariably find their way back to the lessons I learned as a kid growing up. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I um, uh, yeah, I was a very, very, uh, very swift runner. Uh, as, as a consequence, I was very lucky to have been a, a very high-scoring halfback and wide receiver in football. I got a number of uh, uh, coaches from colleges calling me, talking money to go to college, that kind of thing. And then baseball was my true love, and I was a good baseball player. So I eventually went to Harvard, and believe it or not, Harvard in those days had terrific baseball. I mean, um, people find like, really, Harvard? Yeah, well, I had – there were eight guys in my class who played uh, professional baseball. And we went to the College World Series my sophomore year. Um, and then they went again after I had already signed, in, which was my senior year. But the fact is, um, uh, when I got to Harvard, I mean, I didn't play much. I sat on the bench because the guys ahead of me were – or older and pretty good ball players too, but it drove me nuts that I wasn't getting any playing time. I thought I was hot stuff, and and uh, you know this is something playing time is always a major issue. But it was interesting to see how this all played out. I basically just sort of buckled down, worked hard, uh, really committed myself to saying this is important to me. I want to be have a shot at playing professional baseball. I just made a commitment to do that to work my tail off all winter into the spring and all summer, because that was something I really wanted to achieve. And I was lucky enough to do that. Did you, are you the one that told the story on your show about Steve Young? Yes. So yeah. I, I want to share that with uh, our group here. Um, you want to give the... Uh... Yeah, Steve Young. I actually got to know Steve Young one year uh, after I was, I guess, starting out in my, I guess, my early mid-20s, I was trying to do some play-by-play -play work, I was broadcasting high school football games on WGCH in Greenwich, Connecticut. And that particular year, I was doing Greenwich high school football, and they had a left-handed quarterback who didn't throw very much, but he was very fast, named Steve Young. So, you know, I did his games, and Steve was great, and he was, they had an undefeated season, and he was, um, I mean, as advertised, he was really more of a running back with great speed, but he didn't throw, he didn't have to throw more than maybe five, six times a game. So, some years later, uh, I found out more about Steve, and, and the bottom line is that he went to BYU. It was the only school that offered him a scholarship. Um, when he got out there, uh, he found himself – this is back when BYU was quarterback university. Yeah. Uh, and, and he found himself as eighth string as a freshman. Not only he was so low in the depth chart, he didn't, he didn't even dress out for the home games at BYU. And uh, I guess during the course of that freshman year, he was so discouraged, he called his dad, who had actually played, had gone to BYU himself and also had played there. And he said, Dad, I, this is not working out. I just, uh, uh, I want to quit and come home. And his dad said to him quite bluntly, he said, well, Steve, you can always, uh, you can quit if you want, but you can't come home. We, we don't have any home here for any quitters. And it's not the response that Steve expected, but he sort of thought about it and went back and said, okay, I'm going to go out and try to work my tail off and perfect the way to throw spirals and passes. Because remember, he had not thrown much 
in high school. And he got a break because the offensive coordinator uh, after his freshman year left to go to another college. And the new guy came in and said, who's this kid, the left-handed quarterback? He's got a pretty good arm. And one thing led to another. And when, when two, three years passed, he was now an All-American. But it was unbelievable that it came up from eighth string to being Steve Young, Hall of Famer. Yeah. And when I heard that, I, I uh, researched it a little bit more and and also found out that he actually learned how to throw the ball from Jim McMahon. Said right. that just by watching him in practice, how to spin the ball, he said he had no idea how to throw a football before that. And he said after that, his whole world changed. It did. And uh, McMahon was, I think, uh, two years ahead of him, perhaps, at BYU. But uh, but Steve is a bright guy, and people forget that he did get his law degree after he finished college at BYU. And, and um, it's a very successful uh, investor, hedge fund kind of guy. But he's a smart guy and a terrific human being. But that's what happened. He sort of observed, what does Jim McMahon do that I don't do when it comes to gripping a football? And he learned and he copied him. And, and McMahon was kind to him and took care of him. And yeah, you know, Jim McMahon was a great quarterback, but Steve Young is Hall of Famer. So. And, and, and that's, so that's where I'm at next is that, so for Jim McMahon, the pivotal moment in his adult, young adult life was that phone call that he makes home to his father and his father says what he says to him. And you think about, because I, I also had heard uh, Steve Young say in an interview that he actually kept his bags packed, did not yeah. unpack his bags until December because he wanted to go home so badly and was looking for an excuse to go home. So that, that phone call, that pivotal time, there's no Steve Young, 49er, there's no Hall of Fame, yeah. there's no, none of no. that stuff, um, which is amazing to me. Did you, did you have a moment where a moment in time that your father or someone else gave you a piece of advice that was pivotal for you? Well, my father and my mother, and again, uh, they were like uh, yin and yang, two peas in a pod. They were, they were an extraordinary couple. And uh, I was very, very blessed, as my family was, that they lived well into their 90s and, and in good health. But, you know, when you talk to my dad, when things weren't going well, um, he, he would listen very calmly, very patiently. It wasn't so much that he would give you or, or burden you with advice, but his attitude was, look, there's only so many things you can control in your life, but if you can control, you can't control the effort you put into, to what you put into something, whether it's a, your sports or your academics, whatever it might be. And as long as you can look yourself in the mirror and know that you've done the best you very much best can, that's all that matters uh, because you've prepared to the nth degree. And that's how he lived his life. I mean, he, he always prepared. He was known endlessly for being a great, uh, for great prep work with all the sports cast. And that's what he did. And, and so that's how it worked. I mean, he, he said, you do what you want to do, but make sure you cover all the bases and you do what you want to do. And, you know, if we got to the point where it was, like I said, think, well, um, I mean, I never had a situation where I wanted to quit. I just really turned around. I just wanted to show them people that I was using that as motivation to make me better. So I guess that that's probably the big payoff. That wasn't about quitting. It's about what can I do to show them that they're wrong. That concludes part one with our interview with Rick Wolf. Rick was a great guest, and Rick has a lot more to say in part two. He talks about baseball, 
youth sports specialization, and a lot more. So don't miss it. Join us here on If You Build It for part two. Look forward to seeing everybody out next week. Thank you.